Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 125, which makes me think of the UK intercity 125 trains and sadly showing my age again, 125 photography film. I tried explaining how we used to take photos in the old days to my son and it was like talking in a different language. Anyway, I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I do remember vividly the good old days of newspapers and magazines when you had to get film developed before you could run photos, and then you had to look at the negatives to see which was the best one. The worst was when there was something really big happened very close to press time, which means it's far too easy nowadays, although I can't say that I'd like to go back to covering a sporting event or a concert and having to go through 15 rolls of film and then having to wait anxiously the next day for them to be developed so you could hopefully pick one or two out that were any good. I still have boxes and boxes of negatives in my office, all of them extremely neatly filed under P for photos. School is back here in Scotland, and it's very strange doing my work again this week with no interruptions. Well, at least not from my son. But I am able to listen to music again, which is great. I have dozens of CDs that have been piling up over the last few months that I've not been able to listen to. And I think because of lockdown, 2021 is going to be a bumper year for new music releases, which also means it'll be very expensive. I think 2021 is also going to be the year of the last-minute holiday. Today's podcast feels like I planned it perfectly, but I didn't. But today's March the 17th, also known as St. Patrick's Day, and I think it's maybe taken just as seriously in parts of the US as it is in Ireland, maybe even more so. In Canada, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, it's a public holiday there too. But why do I mention this? Well, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX, who, as long-time listeners know, is based in Dublin in Ireland. And we also have an interview with Board Beer, the Irish Food Board, on Irish food exports to the UK and Brexit. So that's timely and it's perfect for St. Patrick's Day. As I mentioned, I just wish I could say that I planned it that way. So this week our guests are Porek Brennan, Meat, Food and Beverages Director at Board Beer, Lara Phillips, Senior Manager of Fonterra Sustainability Solutions, and from Quantec, CEO Raywin McPhillips and Founder and Innovation Director, Dr. Rod Claycomb. And so it's time now for our look at what's been happening in the news. And there are a few fairly big ones to tell you about. India and Russia have met to discuss strengthening their cooperation in agriculture. New partners have joined a coalition group to accelerate sustainable dairy development in Nigeria. And a Valio farm in Finland is now using a manure-powered milk truck. Kerry and the World Food Programme have partnered on a milk project in Burundi. Givaudin has reorganized its taste and well-being product portfolio and Tetra Pak and Rockwell Automation are set to collaborate on cheese and powder solutions. In Australia, the ACCC has authorized Queensland's Fair Go Dairy licensing scheme. And I think the biggest news of the week is that not long after recommending the roles of CEO and chairman at Danone be split, Emmanuel Faber is now neither. Swedish company Novax has taken a controlling share of ingredient supplier Ulrich and & Short, 
and Latvia-headquartered ice cream giant Food Union has published its 2020 financials, and profits are up. And while I haven't written it yet, Fonterra's half-year financials are also out, and that will be in tomorrow's Dairy Reporter news. The beverage carton industry has revealed a 10-year roadmap. Nestle has launched bio-based lids and scoops for infant formula, and AAK has partnered with Big Idea Ventures on ingredient development for dairy alternative products. You can read all of these and many more, and even binge listen to the first 124 podcasts at dairyreporter.com. Actually, I don't really recommend anyone listen to all the podcasts one after another. It would be about 100 hours, and considering 8 hours a day of sleep, it would take you 6 straight days. But, on the bright side, I'm glad you're listening to this one. And so we should move on to this week's interviews. And we're starting off this week with butter, which can, of course, be pronounced quite differently in North America. I remember going through a drive-thru one time asking for a bagel with butter and having absolutely no response whatsoever until I asked for a bagel with butter. Anyway, NZMP, Fonterra's dairy ingredient and solutions brand, has launched a new Carbon Zero certified organic butter. And to tell us more about it is Laura Phillips, Senior Manager of Fonterra Sustainability Solutions. So I wonder if we could start with some of the background on the development of the Carbon Zero organic butter. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I guess the start of the background for that, for our carbon zero organic butter is really around our plan around climate change at Fonterra. And this is obviously, you know, a key challenge for the dairy category and for our business as well as our customers. So reducing emissions is a key priority in our strategy to get towards net zero. But we know that our customers and consumers are also looking for uh, solutions today, particularly as you know, transitioning our assets and finding solutions for biological methane are going to take some time. So really the carbon zero proposition is around addressing that increasing consumer need where they're seeking to understand the carbon footprint of their products and looking for more sustainable options in the supermarket, as well as our customers who are setting ambitious commitments around emission reduction, as well as making commitments around delivering carbon neutral products to their consumers. So we know that emissions in our customer supply chain are often material and challenging for them to address. So this is really about being part of the solution and working together with our customers to be able to mitigate climate right now as we work towards our emission reduction plans. And the product itself, how does it differ other than the fact that it's carbon zero? Yes, it's one of the first butters in the market that's had a full life cycle analysis for the emissions from farm, factory, supply chain and consumption. So it's a full LCA. And then we've gotten that LCA uh, completed by our partners, Ag Research, as well as have gotten that audited and verified by Toitu EnviroMark as well as have demonstrated emission reduction for that product and a plan to reduce emissions further. The final component of the carbon zero certification is around offsetting the remaining emissions that we've not been able to reduce to net zero today. And so that's where we work with Toy2 EnviroMark, who provide a portfolio of high quality carbon offsets that we can utilize in order to balance out the remaining emissions in our supply chain for the product. 
in terms of like the the properties and the taste is it just like a regular butter that you would produce correct yeah so it's the same certified organic butter from new zealand and it's got the same great attributes of our natural new zealand products here from new zealand so from pasture-fed cows 365 days a year high standards of animal health and welfare as well as a, a lower footprint because of our new zealand farming systems which mean that we can deliver a lower footprint product as we're delivering it to the consumers and then offsetting the remaining footprint for our customers and as far as the intended market for the butter is it for food service or is it destined for the end consumer? Yeah, so we see this Carbon Zero product being able to offer a few different opportunities for our customers. So first of all, it can help our customers to make some progress towards their sustainability goals and help to reduce emissions in their supply chain in the interim as they work to reduce emissions, as well as being able to utilize that certification to actually meet that consumer demand for sustainable products and make a carbon zero claim on the product packaging itself for their end product, which can help them to build sustainability into their brand proposition, meet that higher order of consumer need around uh, addressing their interests around sustainability, as well as helping them to potentially differentiate on shelf. So we've started with North America, with our launch that we issued last week. This was a good place for us to start based on what we've heard from our customers and consumers, and we'll be rolling out that launch further for our European customers in April. And you mentioned the credentials that the product has. How will that be conveyed to the end consumer? Is that if you're working with other companies, is that going to be for them to do, or how will you get that message across? Yeah, so we think uh, how we communicate this is a really important part of the story. We know that consumers want to understand more about the sustainability attributes of their products and are really looking for more information and looking for that credibility around what organization is communicating around their sustainability attributes. So the independence of this certification and the work that we've done in order to deliver that is an important part of the proposition, as well as really the story that we can bring around that, around the work that our farmers are doing around climate change, the work that we're doing in the innovation and in our manufacturing to really continue to reduce our emissions and work towards net zero over time. So that's something that we can also support our customers with around how can they start to bring this story to life, help consumers understand what carbon zero means and how that can provide some benefits to the environment today as we work towards net zero in the future, as well as, of course, you know, the great benefits of our natural dairy here from New Zealand. So that's something that we really want to support our customers with as well to bring that story to life. And how do you measure the sustainability of the butter and how do you calculate what the figures are and, and verify those? Yeah, so we're fortunate here at Fonterra. We started doing on-farm life cycle analyses about 15 years ago with AgriSearch. So we've been starting to measure and understand our footprint for quite some time. And we did our first product life cycle analysis over 10 years ago. So for us, that's really about a foundation of having quality data and having comprehensive data across our supply chain. So that's been a good starting point for us. And AgriSearch have helped us to measure 
and calculate those emissions across the supply chain. And then Toy2 EnviroCare have come in as the certifier to audit and verify that those emissions are correct, as well as ensure that emission reductions have been achieved and that we have a plan to reduce emissions further, which they, as part of the certification, will follow up on in coming years to ensure that we continue to progress towards that. So the carbon footprint of the story and the substantiation behind that is really important, as well as the sustainability attributes and and the sustainability performance of the product itself. So for us at Fonterra, particularly um, when we think about how we can support our customers, we're um, founding members of the Sustainable Dairy Partnership. So that's a monitoring and, and reporting initiative to track and enable credible assurance of sustainability performance. So we can provide that SDP report to our customers so they can help ensure that they're meeting their sustainable sourcing requirements as well. And can you explain to me how the offsetting with the carbon credits works, what the need for it is and, and how it's all calculated? Yeah. So whilst obviously our first priority is reducing our emissions in our supply chain, we know that that's going to take some time. And so we believe that we need to do offsetting in tandem with reduction in our supply chain as well, because that's what our consumers are looking for. And that's what our customers are starting to look to roll out as well. And so the offsetting is that final piece of the carbon zero puzzle, where once we've reduced our emissions as much as we can, we offset the remaining emissions. And so Toy2 EnviroCare, their program has a range of requirements to ensure the highest quality offsets are utilized for the certification. So it requires permanence of the offset, additionality and verification, an example for a few of those criteria to really ensure that the reduction and avoidance of emissions is credible and verifiable. So they recommend a portfolio of offsets that we can utilize, which includes native forest regeneration projects here in New Zealand, which sequester carbon, as well as have some great co-benefits around supporting native biodiversity and water quality. And particularly when we think about those projects being on marginal farmland and riparian areas, they can be a great inset to our farming systems over time as we look to see how we can find some natural solutions within our supply chain. And then Toy2 EnviroCare also have a range of renewable energy projects that they recommend that avoid the development of fossil fuel-based energy. So wind energy, solar energy, sustainable cookstoves, all utilizing the gold standard, which is a well-recognized standard for carbon offset development in the voluntary market. And is that an ever-evolving and changing scenario? Because obviously you mentioned that you were trying to improve your own statistics. So Mm. as they change, will the offsetting change as well? Absolutely. So while we reduce our emissions in our supply chain, that will reduce the requirement for any offsets that might need to be procured. So that's a top priority for us. But also, as we look into the future, a lot of our customers are starting to talk about insetting and looking for how can we find solutions to balance off those remaining offsets within our farming system. So that's where we're looking at soil carbon sequestration, so where we can sequester more carbon 
into our soils and verify that, as well as how we can support planting of marginal areas on farm that aren't productive for dairy production. So really looking at the whole farming system and how we can sequester carbon as well in that farming system, because we know that biological methane isn't something that we're going to get to zero tomorrow. And so we need to look at those solutions in our farming system as well. Some of the things that you mentioned with respect to those offsetting carbon credits seem to be things that are extremely valuable. Is Do you ever envisage a scenario where you don't need to do those things, but you will still do them just because they are so positive? Yes. Well, I mean, certainly, obviously, with the climate challenge, we know that there's a very short time frame in which we need to significantly reduce global emissions to stay within the Paris commitment. And we know that consumers are really concerned about this and are looking for options in their daily lifestyle where they can help be part of that solution as well. And so that's why we believe that offsetting is going to need to play a role in meeting that consumer need. And if consumers are wanting those additional benefits and really looking for products that meet those higher order needs around their beliefs, their passions, their concerns, then certainly you know we'll be looking to see how we can support that in our product portfolio and provide options for our consumers to have access to those products. Sure. It just seems that you have all of these great things that are happening with the offsets, like the mm-hmm. plant planting, and then all of a sudden you say, well, we don't need that anymore, so we're not going to do it. It just seems like it would be something that would be a good yeah. thing to be able to, even if it's in partnership with others or the end consumer, to be able to drive even better uh, environmental change. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, certainly we're, we're encouraging our farmers to do that. And we have a team of sustainable dairying advisors working with our farmers every day around understanding their environmental impact and then how we can best address that and find those opportunities to reduce our emissions and you know improve outcomes on farm. And so certainly where you know there's those initiatives that have great co-benefits around supporting the health and regeneration of our ecosystems as well as supporting sustainable dairy production, then we'll be looking to do that within our own farming system. And then if consumers are looking for those additional benefits as well beyond that, then we're happy to um, ensure that we can find a way to, to meet that need. Sure. You mentioned that this is starting in North America and then it will move to Europe in April. Is there anywhere beyond that or is it just those two markets that you're really looking to? Well, what we know is that climate change is a global challenge and an issue that's universally relevant across the dairy category and across our markets. And so we've got an understanding of where consumers are at in different markets and what they're looking for. And in some markets, consumers are really looking to understand more about the animal health and welfare we have here in New Zealand around the natural dairy pasture-fed farming system. So there's different attributes that we can look to offer to consumers based on you know their needs. But we know that climate change is globally relevant and something that's really of concern, particularly to you know what we're seeing in sort of millennials and, and younger generations. And so in markets outside in North America, we think this is also a great offering to our customers. And so where that's going to work in their consumer brands offshore, we'll certainly look to support that. So this is a global capability that we can provide for our customers in Asia as well and Africa, Middle East. Is this part of a portfolio of products that are in this carbon zero range or is it the start of that and you expect and hope to add more to it? Yes. So we last year actually started our carbon zero journey launching uh, a range of 
certified fresh milks here in New Zealand. We launched Simply Milk in partnership with one of our customers, Foodstuffs North Island here in New Zealand, which was the first carbon zero fresh milk in the Southern Hemisphere, and then subsequently rolled out later last year with our Anchor Specialty Milks range, Carbon Zero Certification as well, which provides that nutritional benefits to our consumers as well as those environmental benefits. So we've started in the past year in the fresh milk category here in New Zealand and now expanding this out to our offerings to our ingredients customers offshore. So we see this as something that we will look to potentially expand to other dairy categories as well, really based on customer needs and what we're hearing from our consumers. Next, we are going to Ireland to chat with Board Beer about how Brexit has and may affect the relationship that's developed over many years between Ireland and its nearest neighbour, the UK. Porek Brennan, Meat, Food and Beverages Director at Board Beer, can tell us more about it. I wonder if you could sort of run through what the current relationship is between the UK and Ireland and how it's yeah. been affected yeah. by the uh, the Brexit? Well, it's, when you look at the relationship that's there between the UK and Ireland, it's such a long-standing relationship, particularly when it comes to food and drink. You look at it from a total food and drink sector point of view in Ireland, the UK market bought 4.3 billion euro worth of food and drink from Ireland last year, which is roughly about a third of our total exports. And when you look into that figure, and nearly half of that value comes from either dairy or beef, both of which are kind of in around that 1 billion euro figure each. And I suppose in many ways, there's a kind of the commonality or near, nearly a mutual dependency between both countries when it comes to trade, whether that's on the dairy side or some of the other food products as well. Now, obviously, part of that is the geographical proximity and the kind of historical links that are there. But you'd nearly feel sometimes that we take for granted the kind of similar culture, the shared language, the similar way of doing business very similar standards when it comes to agriculture and food production, obviously. So there's an awful lot of, of commonality between both countries. That means, I suppose, those links and those relationships when it comes to trading in food is very, very strong. We're obviously, for the last nearly what, three, two and a half months, nearly at this stage, we're at the beginning of a new trading relationship with the UK. And like anything that comes in new, it's bringing with it some challenges. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot more in the way of procedures and paperwork involved in supplying the British market now for us. That's adding complexity and it's adding cost in terms of, of the length of time and what's involved in getting products into the British market. And I suppose, unfortunately, the days of that kind of seamless trade that we had are, are gone. So we have to learn to live with that and get our supply chains in, in a way that continues to work because what we're really trying to do we would view what's come in so far as being very much the initial phases what's due to happen on the 1st of april obviously when it comes to sps checks and the health certification and all of that that's the next phase and in many ways that's probably going to be a more complicated phase to make sure the systems work at both ends so that we have an ability to make sure all the health certificates are in place easily in terms of the product that we want to export to the british market and likewise when that product arrives in britain then are the processes and procedures running smoothly enough to try and limit delays on that side as well so there's no doubt but there's challenges there but the one thing i suppose that's coming loud and clear from our dairy exporters is that commitment to continue supplying the uk market is as strong as ever i think the links that are there at a customer level and even at a consumer level in terms of affinity towards ireland and irish food products is so strong 
we don't want anything to jeopardise that. So, And I think even when you look at since the Brexit referendum, what we often forget is actually the value of food and drink products from Ireland increased by 200 million since the referendum. So there's no sign of any Irish food company looking, if you like, to abandon the UK or anything like that, far from it. They want to try and maintain the relationships that they have there, but at the same time, they're trying to figure out how this new system is going to operate, how they can minimise any disruption or minimise the complexity in those supply chains. So there's still a bit of, I suppose, a work in the way through that because the volumes of trade that are happening at the moment probably quite aren't at 100% of normal if you like so we're gradually building up but it's it's people are kind of feeling their way through it over the last eight or ten weeks. You mentioned the volume of trade how much trade is there in terms of UK and Ireland's dairy relationship? Yeah, well, uh, as I said earlier on, dairy is a big part of what we export to the UK. Last year, for example, we're heading for nearly 900 million euro worth of dairy products went from Ireland into the UK market. Just to put that in context from a dairy point of view, that's about a fifth of all of our dairy exports last year were destined for the UK. Now, obviously, within that, there's different products. So the two main categories that we export to the UK traditionally have been, I suppose, cheddar cheese and butter between them they would account for maybe about 60% of our dairy exports into the UK market. Cheddar cheese, for example, nearly 45% of our cheddar cheese would go to the UK. That's in and around last year, I think about 98,000 tonnes of cheddar cheese going into the UK. Butter, somewhere in the region of 45,000 tonnes of butter went from Ireland into the UK market. So very, very substantial in terms of those two areas. And then a lot of the ingredients as well going into the market from a manufacturing point of view. So, and I suppose really... What that reflects in many ways is that British and Irish dairy are nearly in some ways deemed to be equivalent or very common from a customer point of view in terms of of the product and how it's produced, but also in terms of the systems that are in place behind it. So really, I suppose at the moment, what we're looking at from a dairy point of view going into the UK is you look at the global situation in terms of the supply demand dynamic that's there, and it remains reasonably positive despite all the challenges that are out there. And I suppose really what we're trying to see now is over the last couple of months, what's been happening in the UK is the levels of orders coming through have been pretty solid in terms of demand for for Irish dairy products going into that market. And I suppose that reflects maybe the strength of the relationships that are there with customers and Irish dairy exporters in the UK and probably also reflects the fact that the dairy industry has been, I suppose, very proactive in trying to prepare for Brexit and very proactive in how they've addressed that with some of our key customers as well. So as we would see it at the moment, we'd be very hopeful that we can continue to see a strong demand for Irish dairy products in the UK. But we also know that we need more than ever to focus on what the consumer is looking for and to be able to differentiate ourselves then in the market as much as we can. So what is it that's unique or different about Irish dairy that we can lean into and maybe promote even more strongly than we have been doing up to now? And that's going to be critical as we try and hold on to, I suppose, the position we have in the market. Does the Northern Ireland situation muddy the waters or is that something that, again, we'll have to see what happens as we go? No, I think like as as of now, from from our point of view, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol is there now. Notwithstanding some of the issues that have been identified over the last couple of months, that essentially allows for that continuation of trade between North and South on a pretty open basis, if you like. Uh, and obviously, within the dairy industry in Ireland, we have a number of companies that operate both in Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland. So that's an important piece to to keep that working as well as it can. But I don't think that's muddying the waters necessarily. I suppose what we're probably more anxious to do is is from a 
uh, Great Britain, if you like, in terms of that customer piece, uh, in terms of how we can position Irish dairy and make sure that we continue to have a supply chain that works from a retailer, a food service customer point of view, and that we continue to be viewed as a, a reliable and high quality supplier of dairy products. So whether that's from what we're seeing, the growing trend around things like sustainability, for example, uh, how can Irish dairy demonstrate its credentials in that area so it can meet what consumers are looking for and help our customers maybe deliver that on shelves for them as well. So that's maybe more where, where more the focus is on at the moment, Jim. Right. I think most British consumers would be very familiar with Irish dairy products and also very fond of them, I would imagine. So uh, mm. what do you see as being the most challenging issues yeah. with Brexit and what can you do to make that better? The biggest challenge of the whole lot in many ways is ensuring as little disruption as possible to the flow of products. And I think the industry has done that very well so far in terms of the flow of products from Ireland into the British market. Dealing with that, that cost and complexity that I was talking about earlier on as well, and making sure that you have a supply chain that's capable of, of supplying the needs of UK customers at the, I suppose, at the rate or pace that it needs to be able to supply them at. That's certainly a big challenge. And I suppose the other thing around that is we have to remember we're trying to get used to this new trading relationship at a time when COVID and all the associated effects of COVID are still very visible. Like you look at the UK market no more than any other market and food service being virtually at a standstill in many, many parts of that sector, if you like, that has a huge impact on the market and it creates challenges then in terms of where our products are going and how they're positioned in the market, if you like. So like we're viewing, I suppose, the three biggest elements of uncertainty at the moment are obviously the economic implications of living with COVID, if you like, the trade dynamics that are associated with Brexit then, and, and we would view that overall sustainability areas as growing in importance all the time as well. I suppose when you think about those, they all are common in that the, at the centre of every one of them is the consumer and how they react and how they develop or how they change their habits on the back of, of those developments, if you like. So one thing for us that's been very important and we continue to do is we track I suppose consumer sentiment towards Irish food and drink in, in the UK market. We've been doing that now since January 2019 with our consumer pulse surveys every couple of months if you like. And it's just as much as anything else to kind of test the water to see are consumers still open to looking at Ireland as a source of food and drink products and what is it about our food and drink products that are important to them if you like. So like for the last set of results we had that came out in February, would have said that nearly nine out of 10 consumers in the UK are very open to choosing food and drink from Ireland. And that's held really solid throughout all, of, all the Brexit negotiations, etc. But really what's most important to us is that we're, the Republic of Ireland is very much viewed as the most trusted European origin of product, if you like, when it comes right across food and drink, not just in dairy, among UK consumers. We're viewed as being an environmentally sustainable producer. And it's also when you call out things like cheddar or beef, you know, nearly seven out of 10 consumers are saying that they'd actually miss those products if they weren't available to buy. So I suppose what we're saying then, if that's the positive backdrop that's there for us, there's a couple of things that we need to do then is listen to what's happening at consumer level and make sure our products and product range works into those needs and we're able to demonstrate why our products meet their needs and whether it's on sustainability or anything else. And then the second part is in making sure that the industry is as prepared as possible. And I think in fairness to the industry itself, it's been four years preparing 
for Brexit in terms of, you know, getting ready for any customs procedures, looking, kind of mapping their supply chain, seeing which parts of their supply chain that had to change and evolve to be in a position to supply the UK market. So that has got us to where we are today in a reasonably good position, I'd like to think. Now, the next challenge is come April and come July after that with the final implementation of the trade cooperation agreement that we make sure we continue to prepare, we continue to test and kind of keep that flowing. So overcoming the complexities as best we can and trying to keep that product moving. And at the same time, being thinking about, well, what is it that a UK consumer would want from an Irish product? And how can we make sure we're able to demonstrate to them that we deliver on that? And that obviously helps the, the retail customer or the food service customer as well. And sort of extending that beyond the UK, obviously Ireland didn't leave the EU and it's still part of the EU. So I wonder in terms of, I just read an article a few days ago actually about how Ireland is bypassing the UK with some of its products. If if the worst comes to the worst or if things aren't great, clearly Ireland still has a good position within the EU. Will you be looking to capitalize on some of those other potential markets as well? Yeah, yeah, I suppose the first thing I meant to say on that one, Jim, is, and I think I just referenced it briefly earlier on, even from a dairy perspective, since the, the Brexit vote in June 2016, the value of dairy trade to the UK has actually increased by about 10 or 12%. So I think that in many ways gives a reflection of how importantly the UK market is viewed by our industry. Now, that's come at a time when the overall output of the Irish dairy industry is obviously growing and has been growing quite a bit. We have certainly seen more demand emerging across Europe, across North America, Africa and Asia. But I suppose the the one thing is very clear for me in any conversations that we have with the industry is that that commitment to continue to supply, I suppose, our nearest neighbour, our closest export market, if you like. And I don't see that changing. But at the same time, you have seen the dairy sector no more than the other sectors looking to see, well, are there opportunities to diversify from a market or a channel point of view all the time? So for Borbia's part, we've been working with the industry over the last number of years to try and say, prioritize potential markets that seem to be emerging that have long-term opportunity for growth, if you like. So we would have undertaken a market prioritization program back in 2017 and trying to identify, I suppose, those longer-term bets in terms of markets that offer potential and trying then, I suppose, rather than trying to go everywhere, trying to bring a bit of focus and say, well, which are the 5, 10, 15 markets that would appear to offer the best long-term potential for growth? So in many ways, from a Borbia point of view, that work has kind of laid our direction in, in terms of where we invest our efforts from a dairy point of view, in terms of where we are more active in terms of our, our activities and initiatives on the ground. We have seen a lot of growth in dairy two other European markets over the last four or five years. We've seen really strong growth to North America, particularly from a butter point of view. We've seen Africa and Asia emerging more strongly, even for cheese and butter as well, albeit maybe from, from smaller bases. So the likes of North Africa and Japan have become much more important markets from a cheese point of view over the last couple of years. But the industry has also been investing quite a bit in, I suppose, broadening the product portfolio a little bit. So Obviously, our tradition is in cheddar cheese, but there's a lot of investment gone in here in the industry in the last few years around things like mozzarella, products like that. So trying, I suppose, to reflect where there might be opportunity for in other types of cheeses, put the processes in place and the production in place and try and make sure that we're in a position to uh, 
have an offering or compete in those areas as well. So you are seeing that investment. But I suppose we will continue as an industry to look for opportunities in any market that we can find. But the UK market is and we hope will continue to be absolutely critical to the dairy industry and indeed to the food and drink industry in general. And as we talked about earlier, the reputation of Irish dairy products has always been high in the UK. You have the grass-fed standard. I remember covering that when it was launched a couple of years ago. How has that developed over the time between launch and today? Yeah, we've, we we obviously launched the standard just, well, the dairy standard was launched about a year ago now at this stage is all. Uh, and uh, really what we're trying to do with that, you see, is again, tapping into where the consumer is at in terms of, of what they're looking for in terms of their products. We wanted to have a system in place that would give us a kind of a scientifically measured and independently accredited assurance, if you like, of the grass-fed nature of Irish dairy products and Irish and Irish dairy production, if you like. So that was the, the background to it at the time. And really, the development of that was very much market-driven. So we would have spoken to consumers and trade customers across a number of markets in Europe, Asia, North America. And I suppose when we talked about grass-fed at both a consumer and a trade customer level, it came back very strongly that grass-fed really resonated from a natural and a premium point of view. So, for example, I think with nearly two thirds of consumers would have said that they would be more likely to buy a product that was grass fed than not grass fed. And as some sort of a similar percentage would have said they would be willing potentially to pay more for that product. So we took that as, as a signal, I suppose, from the market at the time that there was an opportunity here for Ireland to put its best foot forward when it came to the grass fed production system we had. So we went about obviously developing an accreditation and a verified system for measuring the grass-fed nature of dairy production and indeed beef production as well. And we tried to build that standard on the basis of a science-based model and a methodology that then has that independent accreditation attached to it. So, like for example, we're looking at grass-fed on the basis of as fed to the animal, if you like. So for dairy, we're saying the grass-fed standard is a minimum of 90% grass-fed uh, for dairy products, if you like, and an average of 95% grass-fed. We also have a days of grass element built into that as well, where we're talking about a days of grass or a days of pasture of, of 240 days per year. So really, uh, we've had a, a sustainable dairy assurance scheme in place for many years in Ireland. And using the data that we're collecting at audit as part of that sustainable dairy assurance scheme and utilising that as best we can to position and, I suppose, verify the grass-fed credentials of our dairy production. So what we've been doing over the last number of months in particular is, I suppose we've been trying to inform the marketplace about the existence of the standard and then working with individual processors to get their processing facilities approved uh, as part of the grass-fed standard so they're in a position to use that. So what we're going to be doing over the next number of months now is very much working at a customer level and trying to see where there's opportunity to use the grass-fed standard and indeed its associated logo that goes with it to try and build a position of Irish Day, whether that's in the British market or further afield, is trying to see how we can use that to, I suppose, demonstrate the credentials of Irish dairy products and build that reputation even further. And I suppose at a customer level, being able to demonstrate how it feeds into what their consumers are are looking for when it comes to natural and premium. So we're quite, I suppose, enthusiastic about it and quite optimistic that we can roll this out strongly 
over the course of 2021 and into 2022. And I think it's one of the things that we need to continue doing as an industry, whether it's for the British market or more generally for export markets, is by listening to consumer, knowing what we need to have in place in terms of systems and I suppose proof points, if you like, and trying to make sure we're, we're putting the best foot forward all the time because it's important to us that we hold our position in a very high value market like the UK market. Be interesting to see how all of this plays out over the next 12 months, that's for sure. All right, well, that's great, unless there's something else that you specifically no, no, wanted I'm, to... I'm delighted with that, Jim. No, thank, thanks for the time on it. Uh, very much uh, welcome the opportunity just to chat through some of the, the issues. And I think, you know, from a from a Brexit point of view, I suppose what we're looking at is so far so good in terms of the preparations that have been done have been have been working but obviously april 1st is a, is a big date now when it gets to sbs checks and all our health certificates and everything and hopefully we can by working with our customers and the supply chain generally we can continue to, to keep product moving as best we can without too much disruption and obviously trying to, to minimize any costs involved as well that's going to be the big focus and then hopefully as we come out of COVID, eventually at some point uh, and food service reopens that will give us opportunities from a dairy point of view to, to continue servicing the UK market in a very meaningful way. And now it's back to New Zealand for some exciting developments from Quantec, who we featured on the show just a few weeks ago. But their IDP product has shown some interesting results in the fight against COVID-19. So it seemed like a good idea to chat again with Quantex CEO, Raywan McPhillips, and Founder and Innovation Director, Dr. Rod Claycomb. I guess the last time that we spoke, you were undertaking more studies. Is this one of the studies that you were working on? It is actually. So we've got a pretty comprehensive program of study around our ingredients. And so we're constantly reviewing the based on what our customers are needing. And during the initial lockdown here in New Zealand, we had another look at this and the research around milk proteins and viruses. And as we said last time, we started with influenza and herpes simplex and then have moved to broaden that work around viruses because of the results we got and have included COVID-19. And that complements what we already know about IDP and its immune defence properties. So we're broadening the scope around the research and knowledge that we have around our IDP. And so what did the new research involve? Well, it was uh, simply, it was just doing the same protocol we did last time for influenza and herpes, but replicating that protocol with uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is, of course, the name, the virus that has caused what's known as the pandemic COVID-19. And uh, of course, the live virus is fairly dangerous to use. So the lab developed a special, what they call um, pseudotype that perfectly replicates the virus. And then it's safe to use by the lab personnel. Obviously, this was an in vitro study. How is it possible to extrapolate that kind of study to how it would work in vivo? Right. Well, the lab tests actually use human cell cultures, so they can absolutely be extrapolated to people since they're using the actual cells from people. And uh, we've shown that the IDP proteins have this core function of protecting surfaces from infection and inflammation. And that's why they're in milk in the first place, to protect the cow's udder from that. So our hypothesis here was that by exposing human cells to IDP, the virus could 
be kept from getting into and therefore infecting the cells. So we weren't actually looking at does the IDP kill the virus. We're looking at does the IDP protect the cell. So it's kind of like a barrier functionality or a protective jacket for the cells. So while the actual lab tests were not in humans, both the virus itself and the cells were as close to a real-life situation as possible. And, of course, the next steps are actual human studies. So this is something that then would be, rather than a cure, it would be more preventative. It would be more like a, a vaccine, so to speak. Well, probably less like a vaccine. You know, the vaccines work to stimulate the body's immune system to build up antibodies to the virus itself. So IDP is not going to be a vaccine, but you're perfectly correct in saying that it's going to be a preventative functionality um, in the body to protect the cells from viruses getting in there. Clearly, it isn't something you would just take once. I assume you have to you would have to keep taking it. Yeah, it'd be more like a supplement, uh, Jim. It's a uh, Keep in mind, IDP is a dairy protein. It's a food and you're eating it or spraying it on or something and your body's going to use it and then you're going to need to replenish it. So, yeah, it would definitely be more in the supplement category. If you take it, say, orally, how would that prevent it from infecting cells? There's a few ways that IDP supports the body with respect to COVID-19. Uh, so firstly, IDP acts as a barrier to prevent the virus from attaching to the cells of the body, like Rod mentioned before. And that's what the US testing confirmed. And this is where IDP supports the prevention function and where it would be administered through the nasal mouth sprays or mouth lozenges. And then secondly, alongside that from previous studies, We've done, we know that IDP is also proven to have strong anti-inflammatory effect on the body. So that helps the body to modulate or manage its immune response to things like a viral infection. So that may help to reduce the severity of those symptoms. And then finally, in terms of how often a person would take those, depends on the dose rate, but yeah, tend to be daily or twice daily but it helps in terms of that preventative capacity. And we're seeing lots of variation in terms of people that are getting it. Some people get it and then they relapse. Uh, some people get it and it's extremely mild. Some people are still having mm -hmm. the effects of it months later. Is there any indication as to what IDP will do for people that are having those issues? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So the previous work, the work that we've done around IDP's anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial properties support those findings that IDP may reduce the severity of those symptoms. And as you've mentioned, there's people that suffer from what they call long COVID. And some of those sufferers are experiencing things like rather severe diarrhea or vomiting, for example. And we have another study that's underway now that shows that IDP has a, a really positive effect on gut integrity, which may also alleviate those gut issues. And interestingly, there's other work going on internationally in this space with dairy proteins such as lactoferrin, and our in vitro work is actually showing that IDP is more effective than those singular proteins because of that synergistic effect of the range of proteins in IDP, that they work together to be much more effective than those isolated proteins. So we've got the barrier effect around the cells themselves, but then also the effect of the anti-inflammatory on the gut itself. So it sort of works in a couple of ways to support 
sufferers of COVID or influenza or other viruses. What are the next steps in terms of looking at the efficiency of the IDP in humans? We have a what we call a clinical studies roadmap that we're working on. Um, that's one of our Quantech principles, actually. You know, we're really focused on taking these lab results and proving that our products really do work. So the further research on this will become part of the plans going forward. We're already planning some IDP trials. You mentioned doses before. Doses will be put into that to form part of that program of work as well. And uh, formats, probably another thing we'll be thinking about too. You know, the Raywin mentioned that uh, viruses get into the body in a number of ways, through the eyes, the nose, the mouth. There has to be a, an entry point. And we feel that IDP can be put into all those formats. Yeah, hopefully before the end of this year, we'll have some uh, clinical results we can show for IDP for viruses. Not every country is doing vaccination programs at the same rate. How would IDP fit in with vaccination programs? Well, I think it would fit in pretty well. In fact, one of the clinical study protocols we're uh, considering is uh, marrying up IDP usage with vaccination. Now, again, the first thing to point out is we're not saying that IDP is a vaccine. Vaccines are critically important to the population for resolving this pandemic. But the evidence so far from IDP's various bioactivities is it's going to help support the body's cells to resist the virus or reduce potential effects from a virus. So as we design our clinical studies, not just for COVID, but for viruses in general, whether we're talking flus, colds, or COVID, we'll be looking at options for using IDP for both pre- and post-vaccination effects. And clearly it's something that, because you've done the work on influenza and, and herpes simplex virus, it clearly is something that works with viruses. Is this something that would be useful given the fact that we've already seen several variations like the UK one and the Brazilian and there's obviously the potential for it to mutate again? Yeah, mutations, uh, I guess, can take on several forms, and you'd really have to talk to some immunologists about that, Jim. But the effects that, again, going back to what IDP is actually doing, is preventing viruses from entering the cells. And we've seen it across a, a wide variety of families of viruses, from influenza to herpes to rhinovirus to COVID. And so I think there's a high probability that uh, the mutations probably wouldn't be to the extent where... Uh, all those mechanisms of cellular entry would be uh, modified. So uh, I think we're talking about a pretty broad spectrum effect here. Obviously, you're talking about the studies that are happening right now and in terms of getting this to people. Is this something that you could produce on a large scale or is it something that health services would purchase or would it be something that would be an over-the-counter for individuals? We're already manufacturing IDP for commercial customers on a regular basis and we could scale it up pretty quickly. And then customers interested in IDP as an ingredient for their products, so B2B type customers, tend to be using it in um, supplement and health space as well as in functional foods. So if you think sort of yogurts and drinks in that space, they would be available to purchase for consumers. But at the end of the day, it's all about what's best for people's health and well-being. So finished products are already available too. And again, they're readily scalable. So Milk Immune is one of those products that's available online 
and is available today. And there's other products with IDP in it available in China and another one being launched in the US in May. So there's some products already available, but as again, an ingredient product that we'd be working with customers on making available for consumers. So it's something that's versatile and it could be administered in many different ways and, and um, distributed in many different ways. Absolutely, yeah. So what are the next steps that you'll be taking with respect to COVID-19 situation? Well, at the heart of Quantec, we're a natural health products company focused on protecting and building people's health and well-being. So with our IDP ingredient, that's all about supporting people's immunity and helping protect people from becoming ill or reducing the severity of it. And so we'll be continuing to make IDP available internationally to consumers through our work with our ingredients customers and helping brands with IDP in them to make them more well-known so consumers get the benefit of it. And then alongside that, we'll continue to work on what's at the centre of Quantec's success. And that's all about ensuring our products are truly effective. So research will continue to be a core part of that as well. And Rod's spoken quite um, significantly about the clinical work that we're working on. Lots of work ahead, but it's all exciting when it's as cutting edge as it appears to be. You know, it seems to be something that can really make a difference and it couldn't possibly be more topical. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we're we're thrilled that we've got the results that we've got and have the product available for people that can be a real benefit and a, and a help during the time that we're in. And I think that people are much more interested in immunity and also in products that help with immunity, and especially if they're a natural product. Yeah, I think people are starting to understand more and more the benefits of these health products and how they work to complement what's already available. So, you know, the vaccines absolutely have their place and we completely support everyone getting a vaccine. But then these also work, you know, to support people's general health and well-being as well. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi, Jim. Um, so the dairy markets well, continue to be quite volatile as, as they have been for the last uh, several months. Looking at back at the last uh, few weeks and months, we, we've seen pretty strong increases in prices uh, across most products. Um, it hasn't always been a straight line, but it's been it's been pretty strong in terms of overall increases. Um, we've started to see in the last week a bit of um, stability and even some weakness come into the markets for the first time in a while. One of the biggest benchmarks we follow um, would be the global dairy trade, which is, is seen very much as the, uh, the benchmark for Oceania uh, product. And we've seen the first decline on that auction this week, where it decreased overall 3.8%. And that's been the first overall decline in nine events. So, so really, we have seen, it as, as I said, pretty consistent growth, but the first signs now of a bit of weakness. Now, that decline on the, on the face of it, 3.8% down looks quite large, but it's probably not too far away from what we were expecting. One of the, the main products which took a big hit in terms of prices was whole milk powder which is the main uh, product traded on the platform, but that was down 6.2%. 
Um, and the main reason for that is that uh, Fonterra announced late last week that they're going to be adding quite significant volumes uh, to the GDT over the next couple of months, which included 3,500 tonnes of whole milk powder being added to the auction this week. So so clearly that uh, extra supply that came on uh, resulted in, in the market prices dropping down a bit. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a very considerable amount of whole milk that they added. So, you know, considering that we're only down 6.2% on the back of that is seen by most as, as a sign of a bit of stability. Now, the question is, of course, where do we go from here? And, you know, if we look at who was buying on the platform, it's still the majority was being bought by China. They were really the dominant player on it, uh, on the GDT this week. So, if you take them out of the market at these type of prices, the question mark is what's the rest of the global demand like? And, and really, we need to get more information over the coming weeks and months to really test that. Um, on the milk collection side in Europe, um, we still have a bit of a mixed reports. I mean, it's still looking pretty negative in terms of year on year collections in, in France and Germany our two biggest uh, milk producing countries. But other countries are still holding up OK. Now, there is a, a bit of a view that with the increasing prices that should start to filter through to milk prices over the coming months, that collections should for the season should remain uh, you know, reasonable, uh, pro- probably not uh, very strong year on year, but you know, reasonably stable, maybe slightly lower. But as we move towards uh, seasonal increases in milk collections, um, we really will test how strong this demand really is. We've obviously had good retail demand um, across Europe with an anticipation of uh, increased buying from food service as they as they restock. Um, in advance of uh, of markets reopening, uh, you know, there's an expectation that there will be another demand push there. So, you know, overall, the uh, the the markets do seem quite well supported. We are starting to, you know, stabilize and and move a little bit lower in the last week or so. And now the question is, is that just some profit taking and and short term weakness? Or have we really seen a, a cap in the markets and, and have we reached a price where demand is starting to suffer? Thanks a lot, Charlie. I appreciate you taking time out of your holiday. So happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. And we will talk to either you or Liam again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. Next week's interviews are also done, although not edited yet, so it's clear there's quite a lot going on at the moment. And some real cutting-edge stuff for you again next week as well, so I hope you will join us then. I also hope that our good weather continues and that the vaccination rollout gathers a bit of momentum. And hopefully, wherever you are, that there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel as well. And so until next time, please stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.